Hey, podcast listeners, I've got a special offer to share with you. You can get access to all existing and future podcast CEUs for $79 subscription for a year. And because you're amazing, you can use my code SUP20 and get $20 off. A year's access to all podcast CEUs for $59. Check out the details at speechtherapypd.com and use my code SUP20. Are we giving the respiratory system its due in our evaluations and treatments of motor speech disorders? I wonder if we're taking it for granted and not really paying much attention to it. To answer that thought, Dr. Jessica Hoover of Purdue University is returning to the Speech Uncensored podcast to talk about the importance of assessing and treating respiratory function with people with motor speech disorders. Jessica makes assessing and treating respiration accessible to every clinician by sharing low-tech means of capturing data as well as the normative values found in the research. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm your host. And fun fact, I love ice cream for breakfast. And with that, we will transition to Jessica. All right. Hi, Jessica. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Well, I've been better. I've got a little bit of a runny nose, but I'm here. And we're glad you are. All right. I am so delighted to welcome you back to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to our talk today. Um, I have to confess that when I'm doing different assessments, not always for motor speech, but like for voice or other things where, you know, assessing respiratory patterns is important. And they talk about, oh, is it, I don't even know how to say it right. Is it clavicular or clavicle breathing? Clavicular. Oh, I did say it right. I feel mm -hmm. fancy. <laughs> You know, determining is it clavicular breathing or thoracic breathing or diaphragmatic breathing. And I'm like, I see breathing. I don't know how to do anything. Well, that's good. I have really good news for you. Um, the clavicular breathing is extremely rare. If you saw it, you would know you were seeing it. Um, usually only in people who have uh, paralyzed respiratory muscles. So People with a cervical spinal cord injury, usually a higher cervical spinal cord injury. Oh, thank you. I was like, I must be missing something. And I am because I'm not seeing it. <laughs> no, you would, you would know if you if it was happening, you wouldn't be saying, is that? I'm not sure. No, you would know. And diaphragmatic breathing, the good news is we all use our diaphragm to breathe. And what really what I think that's referring to, what that's shorthand for is are they expanding their abdomen when they breathe or taking a deep enough breath? And when we're, we're all using our diaphragm to breathe and um, it's normal, about 15% of the population does not move their abdomen much when they breathe. I happen to be one of those people. Um, and so really what we're looking for with the patient is not if their diaphragm is moving or if their abdomen is moving so much as are they taking a deep breath? Are they breathing before they talk? Um, those kinds of questions, much less, much easier to decide than some of these more um, nebulous abstract terms. Okay. Whew, thank you. All right. Well, I already feel much better. <laughs> All right, Jessica. Well, um, why don't you go ahead and give your background and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how it is you are spending your days these days. All right. So, I'm a professor of speech, language, and hearing sciences here at Purdue University, and I study treatments for people with Parkinson's disease. And part of that is um, physiology of speech production. There's a lot of physical changes that happen with Parkinson's in addition to the neurologic changes. <clears throat> and I um, was trained in my doctoral program to look at speech physiology, particularly the respiratory system. And I have um, spent my career kind of looking at that um, in older adults and young adults relative to different tasks and different cues and in people with Parkinson's disease um, and how treatment changes how they use their respiratory system. 
Um, I'm also the Associate Dean for Research here in the College of Health and Human Sciences at Purdue. And in that job, I really just help faculty um, be more successful in their research, provide resources and support for them. Very nice. And you were also on the podcast to talk about your invention, the Speech Vive, mm -hmm. a wearable device for patients with Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. I was. So be sure that you guys have listened to that one because that one was really cool too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Listen to all of my podcasts. That's right. All of them. They're beautiful. Um, all right. Well, I wanted to ask you a few questions before we got into our topic. Um, since our topic today is about assessing respiration within motor speech disorders, I was wondering if you could tell me who you go to when you have a question, question about respiration. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I usually call Megan Darling-White, who was a doctoral student of mine a number of years ago, and she's at the University of Arizona, and she studies respiratory function in kids with cerebral palsy. And um, I would normally have gone to my mentor, who is Elaine Stathopoulos, but she has retired, and I try not to bother her about work, though I call her about her life. Um, but uh, Megan... And I, I can call her and say, I have this weird respiratory question. Can you help me kind of puzzle out what's happening here? And she's really helpful. Oh, that's awesome. Um, what's the best journal article that you've read lately? I've read, a, I've read a lot of articles recently. I've been really liking the articles. Right now I've been on a kick. There's um, a special uh, journal, the Movement Disorders Society Journal um, has a special uh, issue out right now from the um, Parkinson's, on Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders from their yearly conference. And I'm just being kind of into that issue itself. It's really interesting. They have a lot of, um, you know, the, the articles are really wide ranging. So they're not all about speech. They cover genetic disorders and um, kind of the movement side of movement disorders. And so I just find it really interesting to learn a little bit more about what we think is, you know, causing Parkinson's, what we think is um, how that disease is progressing, how it's different from some of the diseases that it looks like, um, and make those differential diagnoses. So I really like that journal and that's the issue I've been reading. It's sitting on my desk, so. All right, thank I'm you. <laughs> if you want to branch out of the wonderful ASHA journals we have access to. Mm. Um, where's your ideal vacation? Uh, well, I went to Norway and I would have said that was my ideal vacation, but I've been there. If I could go back, I would go back. I would go to uh, Bergen. I loved it. I loved it. But if I have to pick somewhere I haven't been, then I'm going to say Greece. Mm. Very nice. I'm, I follow an SLP on Instagram who I feel like went there recently and now she's making her way through Italy and I'm just living my best life through her Instagram posts. Of all of I, need, I need you to email me that. I love travel posts, like Instagram travels. Um, yes, me too. It's so great. Um, when did you first attend an ASHA convention? All right. I attended as a master's student um, in, I think it was 2008. It was in Seattle. I remember that. And I gave a poster and it was my first poster ever, my first professional talk ever. And it was about respiration. Coincidentally, um, we were looking, there's a paper I have out. It's in JSLHR, very old paper about, well, old for me, about whether putting an airflow mask in someone's face changes the way they breathe because that was one way we kind of got at the lung volume signal. So when you're studying respiration, when someone's talking, you can measure their airflow, you can measure their pressures, you can measure how their rib cage moves and how their abdomen moves. And from set one hour set of those signals, you have to know the volume of their lungs. And so I use um, a calibrated sum of the rib cage and abdomen. But in that paper, we are also looking at could you use um, the mask itself to get airflow and get to lung volume from there. And we found it doesn't change 
breathing, so it's okay to use a mask. Um, I don't know if it gives you the best estimate of lung volume to use that airflow, but um, it didn't disrupt their speech pat their respiratory patterns. And the one person came to my poster, um, and it was uh, Jenny Hoyt, who is at University of Arizona and one of the people who started the field of respiratory function and speech, one of the first people to study it. And so I just remember her coming and being so grateful and nervous out of my mind that she was there. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. That is so awesome. Um, okay. In your opinion, why are graduate students so stressed out? I think it's because we overload them. So we're trying to cram everything they need to know into their brains in what it amounts to when you think about with externships, we really only have them with us for about a year and a half. If you, if you're lucky, like even less, if you're trying to get them out in two years without counting a second summer. And um, I just think that's, it's overwhelming. Our field is huge. Think of the practice, right? And it, there's no way any of them are going to be experts in anything. Um, so I, I've been struggling with this a lot because I hate seeing them so stressed out. I don't think it helps them learn. And I remember being just horribly stressed out in graduate school. I don't know how you, I actually thought my PhD was less stressful than my master's degree. Oh my gosh, that is such an endorsement for PhD. Like I'd be like, all right, well, sign me up. I can do it. <laughs> Great, let me know. <laughs> we need more researchers. We do, don't we? I'm trying to inspire the next wave of researchers with this podcast and being like, it's okay, it's not easy, but it is easy, but it's not easy. It's work, but you'd be surprised how easy it is to get into research and to love it. Yeah. Um, but speaking of research, how does one publish research? Well, um, you have to have publishing research starts way back before you start collecting data. So you need to start with a very solid design, one that's targeted to your question, controls what you can control. Now, a lot of times in speech pathology, we're studying humans and they're not very easy to control, but we try to control as much of those um, extraneous factors we can measure what we can. Um, and so really publishing research starts with that design and execution stage. So then once you have all the data, that's the easy part. Then it's just writing the paper. What's really hard is getting that design right and executing according to that design. All right. I think that was probably the most succinct version of describing research that I think anyone has ever generated in the history of time because it is such a complex and multi-layered type of thing, but I feel like that was very clear. <laughs> well, that's how I approach it in my lab. Excellent. And um, that was my very first trial of my six questions, my five W's and an H. So thank you for participating with me. I like them. I think you should keep them. I do too. I'm kind of in love with them. So definitely gonna have to keep trying that out. Okay. Well, we are more than ready, I'm sure, to get into our topic. So um, go ahead and tell me what, I'm sorry, let me start that part over. What is the importance of assessing respiration during motor speech evaluations? What's the point? What do we need it for? Well, I think the point is that um, a lot of the problems that occur with speech and motor speech disorders can be related to Im um, impaired respiration. And it's often not evaluated and not treated. And I think it makes all of our, uh, by not treating the respiratory system, we're making our other treatments less effective. So your, remember your respiratory system, I don't know how you guys talk about this when you learn this, but it's the drive to the system. It's the pressure to the system. So without the respiratory system, the vocal folds don't vibrate. We don't have um, plosive air pressure release. We don't have airflow. So really we need the respiratory system to drive all the other systems. And so it ends up being kind of a critical base for every all the other uh, systems to function. And if we have someone who's um, having trouble with that system, it can be relate to problems in intelligibility and articulatory clarity and loudness and audibility, all of the kind of things that, um, we as listeners are keying into 
a lot of them are coming from that respiratory system. So a great example is just breath patterning. So where we take a breath, where we take a pause, we all do this at major boundaries. Um, but as people have disorders, we stop, we see these patients who have disorders, they stop taking breaths at major boundaries. So they might go to minor boundaries or even to boundaries that are unrelated to syntax. And I like to demonstrate this a little bit by taking pauses in very weird locations. And imagine if I also had slurred articulation. So you can't figure out what I'm actually, why I'm pausing, where I am in the utterance. We use those pauses to parse as a listener. And so something very simple like that can impact intelligibility and naturalness and prosody, but it's really the respiratory system. Okay. So how can we measure this? How do we assess respiration um, in the field working with our patients? Right. This is so hard. This is so hard because you're, you know, when I measure respiration, I'm using a lot like, you know, $30,000 worth of equipment and I have lots of time to make all these measurements and blah, 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 which no one has time. Not, if we're not at the clinical caseload the way they stand now in the United States, none of us have time to be doing all of this. So what I do, I've been trying to think, I've been thinking about different ways that um, clinicians could get at this without a lot of equipment. So what I really think you need is a way to record a person's voice, whether that's a microphone with your desk, your laptop computer and you're using Pratt, which is a free software, P-R-A-E-T.org, to record them, or you're recording them to a tape or onto your iPad or whatever it is that you're doing. Somehow you need a way to get at a recording. It's easier to do this with a recording. Now, if you can't make a recording, it doesn't mean you can't do this. But if we think about the major perceptual things that tell us there's a problem with respiration, we're thinking about things like loudness, we're thinking about pausing patterns and phrasing, and we're thinking about utterance length. Um, of course, the other one, which is not really our ear, but is a perceptual assessment, is asking a patient if they're fatiguing. So fatigue can be a really great indicator of a respiratory problem. So one thing, if we think about the correlates of those um, perceptual categories, um, sound pressure level. Measuring vocal intensity can be a great way to index what you're hearing as reduced loudness. Um, and that can really be done by simply recording to a computer in Pratt and measuring in Pratt. And it's very easy to do, uh, you know, very simple. And then, um, and I can even, I have some slides that show the steps. If you'd like me to provide those, I can send those and you can see exactly, you open it up, you, you know, here's how you do it. So I can do um, and um, another really um, nice if we're thinking about those uh, three categories. So the other one, another thing I said was utterance length um, and utterance length is I measure it in syllables per second. You could measure it in words per second if it's easier than counting the syllables. Um, but you can just use a reading passage, something connected, something where you kind of know what they're going to say. Uh, makes it quicker for you to measure. And what I often tell clinicians to do is um, to use a reading passage and watch the person read it. So have them read it first to themselves so they're kind of acclimated to it. Then have the person read it aloud and just watch. So if you watch, turn to, you know, later when you're not listening to this podcast, you know, turn to your roommate or your partner or a friend of yours and watch them talk, you're going to see their chest wall move. You're going to see their shoulders and their chest wall move when they breathe. And so put a little mark in your reading passage every time they breathe. So just a slash wherever they breathe so that you know they said this much on the reading passage and then they took a breath and this much and then they took a breath. And what you can basically do is very easily at that point count how many words they said on every breath. And you get a sense for if that's restricted in your patient. Um, and it's a nice, easy outcome measure because you can see if that changes. And often with the kinds of treatments we do for respiratory support, that does extend. And that's a very meaningful clinical outcome because the, le the more you can say on one breath, the less you're going to run out of air, the less you're going to be interrupted, the more natural those breath patterns can be, the more they can be at major boundaries. 
So it just it fixes a lot of things. Um, do you have any norms for what would be typical utterance lengths adults can speak on one breath? Yep, we have a whole, I can send you, um, we have a whole set of, there's lots of norms out there, but I can send you some links to kind of what young adults do, what older adults do, um, the kinds of numbers of, they're all in numbers of syllables, but um, if you have a reading passage that's pretty standard, you can count up the syllables, make it really easy for yourself. And we actually have one that we published before in AJSLP that we've marked each of the boundaries, if they're a major boundary or a minor boundary relative to the language of the, of the reading passage. So you could even do quickly find out if they're breathing at major or minor boundaries, or are they reading, breathing at places where there um, is no syntactic reason it, that their breaths are kind of in the middle of prepositional phrases or those kinds of things. You can do it very easily from this reading passage. So I can make sure you can see that. We used, um, a passage called the Papa Passage in that study. And we basically have broke, it's a two paragraph reading passage and we've marked where the syntactic boundaries are so that it makes it really easy. In the clinic, you have that passage, you take out those markings so that the person's just reading the passage and you have the markings and it's really easy for you to make those kinds of measurements of you know percents of breaths at major boundaries or minor boundaries or unrelated to syntax. And what we've shown in people with Parkinson's is they do tend to take more breaths, significantly more breaths unrelated to syntax than wow. even age and sex matched older adults. Hmm. Yes, it is so helpful to have those norms and to know what is standard, what's atypical and what you're shooting for. So that would be splendid. Yes, I like to see, you know, somewhere around it's somewhere around 12 to 20 syllables per breath that we expect people to be able to do. When you get down to 12, that's pretty short. Think of how, sh how many words really is 12 syllables. And I've seen in our older and younger adults who are normal, we'll get 45 or 50 syllables, right? They can really, they have breath support. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I probably said 100 there on one breath. I know, right? Just keep going. Sometimes I like to get to my patients and I'm like not letting them get a word in edgewise. <laughs> yeah. <was> the turn. <laughs> and uh, so I think you can really look at, I mean, a lot of these are really easy measures to make without any equipment um, just by watching the person breathe. I also tell people to pay attention to, are they breathing before they start talking? So what we see with a lot of our patients who have motor disorders, they just start talking wherever they are. Now that's fine if you're in kind of that mid-lung volume range that's normal for speech. But if you're starting to speak at say your end expiratory level, which um, if you start speaking there, you aren't getting any benefit of um, the passive recoil pressures of the respiratory system. So it's a lot more effort. I think our young adults are robust to doing that but our patients really need to take that preparatory inhalation. Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. Um, you mentioned looking at fatiguing, you know, is, is the patient fatiguing over time? How is that something that we can measure or glean from asking them? Like, and how would they, how can they recognize that? Cause I find a lot of patients may not be very in tune with that until like I bring something to their awareness. How can I describe it in a way to a patient who may not be aware of that so that they would be able to identify it if it's a factor? Um, I usually ask them if they feel tired when they've had to speak in a noisy environment. Do they feel tired when there's been a long conversation that they've been a part of? So I kind of give them scenarios to, you know, do you ever feel tired when this is happening? And sometimes with those patients who aren't as aware, the caregiver can be helpful with or the family and, you know, my dad always gets tired after, at, when we are all sitting around talking after dinner or whatever it is. Could be just that he's tired, it's been a long day, but it could be the fatigue of communicating. Ask if their throat starts to hurt or their neck, because sometimes when we're tired, we'll tighten up the neck muscles and the chest muscles. And, um, and even just watching them, you know, seeing them, maybe if you're working in a facility, if you see them, 
before or after a social event to get a chance to see how they are functioning after they've been talking. Okay. That's much better because in my head, I kind of just had asking them, uh, do you feel like your voice wears out by the end of the day? But you're also looking at by the end of a conversation or at a loud restaurant. So that's that really clarified. That's a good question to ask too about the day. Are there times of the day where you're feeling you feel less tired or more tired from talking? Once we have this information from our assessment, um, how can we integrate it into a treatment plan? How can we address poor breath support in therapy? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And I think that's, I think that um, there's lots of things that we can be doing. Um, so we can be doing some um, expiratory strengthening and inspiratory strengthening. So I will use, I often use um, two devices. So for expiratory strengthening, I use the EMST 150. And for inspiratory strengthening, I use a device called the Power Breathe. And it's like one word, capital P, capital B. Um, and uh, they're both relatively inexpensive devices. They are single use. So you would give them to a, you'd get, have a patient get them or get them for the patient. And then they would just use them. You can't just kind of move them from person to person. But what they're they are our devices that they either expire or inspire against a resistance. So the inspiratory strengthening, the power breathe is a resistance that kicks in when they breathe in. And the EMST 150 has a resistance that kicks in when they breathe out. And it's just like going to the gym. So you're, we set it at a level that's hard, but not too hard. So it's a little bit of overload. As the patient gets stronger, we up, increase the resistance both devices have a little screw, um, kind of a, a turning dial to increase the resistance or decrease the resistance. And um, I ask my patients to use the, the device five days a week. I ask them to do five breaths, five times. So they do five breaths and then they take a break. And then they do five more and they take a break all the way up to a total of 25 breaths. Um, I always ask them to do this sitting down because I don't want them to get dizzy. Um, and it's really important that they know to use nose clips. So device, these devices come with nose clips. They want to put those on because it is hard to breathe in or out through these devices. I mean, it's supposed to be hard. And the easiest thing to do is to breathe through your nose so that you don't have to go through the resistance. So we want to have those clips on so they can't cheat. <laughs> so I really like those. Um, incentive spirometers are, have no resistance in them. So they're really just teaching people what it is to take a deep breath in and blow it all out. So if you have someone who um, isn't ready for strengthening or really just needs to get the hang of what you're talking about um, when you're talking about breathing in before you talk, they might be a way to get some visual feedback, but they really aren't strengthening tools. Um, the other thing I've done is worked on um, the matching the um, where they're taking their breath really with um, the syntax of the of the utter, of what they want to say. So, and with respiratory system, you really have to scaffold people slowly. So you need to move up that um, kind of the structural complexity slowly. So um, adding, taking cues away very slowly. So what kind of what I would do is um, we talk a little bit about where they're taking breaths, that they're not at major boundaries. What does that do to listeners? So they understand why we're working on it. And then I walk, then over the course of sessions, I will work with them on starting out with um, very short reading passages where I've marked where they should take their breath to get them used to the feel of that and how low their how low a lung volume they really should be going to. I think sometimes our patients get used to being at low lung volumes and they don't understand how that's really impacting them. Um, and then um, work to them deciding where the breath should occur, work up to them actually in a reading passage taking the breaths without the marks there. And then I try to transition to short answers. So 
a short discussion about something like read this tiny, I like to use the news articles that are kind of like human interest, short articles. They might read a paragraph and then describe it to me, but they have to do it while thinking about where they should be taking their breaths. If that's too big of a leap, they could kind of scaffold, kind of outline out what they wanna say and put breath marks in and slowly work them up to the point where they're doing something um, without breath marks that is more didactic and then keep moving them away from cues. So away from thinking about where the brush should occur in advance to more complex tasks, but you really have to move slowly. You can't jump a step. You have to really go step by step because it's hard to ingrain these new um, patterns in a system that we don't think about. None of us are thinking about breathing. We just do. That's right. Yeah, I definitely see my patients really struggle with that concept. They're like, breathing isn't something I've ever had to think about in my entire life before. Why is this a big deal now? And why are you making it a big deal in my life? Yeah, well, you're not. So, yeah. So it can be it can be really helpful to um, to provide some context uh, for what why we're working on the respiratory system because people really don't. They think I breathe. It should be easy. I have to breathe to be alive and I've been breathing my whole life. So I don't know kind of would have an impairment in this now, but helping me that strengthening the system, working on patterning, that those can be really beneficial for them is important. Uh, yeah, I really liked how earlier you said that patients get used to that low lung volume and they get acclimated to it and accustomed to it and not recognizing that that's far below what they actually are capable of and what their body needs to be functioning optim optimally. So. And uh, I've even used um, with kids, I've used kind of like hills. I'll put, get like a bike and a hill and they have to breathe in as the bike goes up the hill and then they can have to start start talking at the top of the hill. So they get this like an idea of what we're talking about. So as much as you can make what's happening respiratorily more concrete for someone, um, whether they're watching themselves, sometimes I'll have them put their hands on their chest, see the chest rise so they understand what's really happening. Um, anything you can do to make this more concrete for them is beneficial. That is such a good idea. I really like that visual. Um, of like a bike going up a hill. And then once the bike gets to the top, now you start to talk. Yeah, that's so helpful. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> and um, the other thing with, with patients with motor disorders is posture is critical. So we have patients who have, you know, if they're, if they're with Parkinson's, we have people who are kind of hunched. Um, even with like a person with cerebral palsy, we're going to have kind of a spastic, um, chest wall. So getting them into a good posture, whether that, whether you work with your um, PT colleagues to really um, use some devices to get them upright or whether the person can actually get upright on their own, being upright, not hunched over is really important for speech breathing. Um, I've often, um, even tested people. So sometimes when a person's expiratory muscles are weak, and I'm trying to figure out if that's per part of what's going on, if you lay them down and their speech gets better, that suggests that respiratory is respiratory weakness is really kind of part of this, what's going on. Because um, uh, when you lie down, gravity is basically causing expiration. So it's helping those expiratory muscles. In these patients who have particularly patients who have abdominal muscle weakness. We sometimes think the abdominal muscles are um, really just postural muscles. We didn't forget their role beyond in, in respiration, beyond making us upright. You know, we have to remember that they provide support to the rib cage, support to the diaphragm, in addition to generating expiratory pressure by um, changing the uh, volume of the of the lungs. Um, so um, you can use like a binder for them if someone has a lot of respiratory weak abdominal muscle weakness. And um, so what that is, is it's kind of like a girdle and you can make these very easily from just elastic fabric from like a fabric store and some 
uh, Velcro. Uh, and basically what it, you do is you wrap it around the abdomen below the lowest rib. And remember our low, lowest ribs, our floating ribs are on the side, the far side, right? And um, have the spinder on when they're speaking, it really can help a person with very significant abdominal weakness to speak more um, loudly and more clearly. Um, and it's really easy. They don't have to do anything but wear the binder. Now you don't wanna have that binder on when they're eating or sleeping. And you definitely want physician um, approval for that, but it really can help them, particularly those people where you see a marked difference from lying down to sitting up. Now, if somebody wanted to learn more about that, is there um, research out there or somebody who presents on this specific type of thing? Because, you know, this is the first time I'm hearing of a binder and like, I'm like, oh, that's really helpful. I want to be able to provide that to patients. But like, I've never done that before. That sounds a little bit like outside of my level of expertise. Like, it is not outside your level of expertise. I think you can do it. <laughs> um, you just don't, you know, it's not a terribly, it's a very non-invasive thing. The person can take it off. It's, you know, as long as the binder is comfortable for them and, but still tight enough to support them that is providing some benefit to their speech. Um, I think you're in the right place. Just keep it below the rib cage is the big trick because you don't want to, um, and don't use it with people who have inspiratory muscle weakness. That's another key. If if they're really struggling from an inspiratory perspective, then the binder can be difficult for them. And there's actually a paper by Peter Watson in JSLHR in 2001. Peter, it's Watson and Hickson that talks about using these binders in people who have, um, I think that was spinal cord injury. Wouldn't they have some inspiratory muscle strength weakness? Or so these were people who had. Um, I, I should have reread this paper before today, but um, they had lower thoracic uh, level spinal cord injury. So the diaphragm was in, was still innervated. Remember the diaphragm is innervated by the cervical uh, nerve C3, C4, and C5. So that lower thoracic uh, injury didn't impact the diaphragm, which is your major muscle of inspiration. So they had a little bit of weakness on the intercostal side but most of the problems were with their abdominal muscles. Um, there are uh, talks at ASHA about respiratory function um, sometimes. So at the ASHA convention, uh, there are things like this. Um, and I know I've done a couple of um, CEU type things for speech pathology groups about this. Um, and if someone wanted to see, I can, send you the slides I've used, or if I can help with something like that, let me know. Another thing that I found really useful, and I'm going to send, this is some of the links I'm going to send to you, is um, Tom Hickson and Jenny Hoyt did a set of three articles about assessing the respiratory system visually and with some different special tasks. And they, um, they're very good articles. So they talk about there's one on the diaphragm, one on the rib cage, and one on the abdomen. And each one talks about what that's what that part of the body does for speech breathing. They talk about what kind of disorders you could have. They give you step-by-step, um, -step, this is a clinical exam with a rating sheet, with a description of if you get abnormal findings in each of these ratings, what does it mean? I think they're just the most amazing papers ever. Yeah, that sounds like gold. I mean, that's what we want every paper we read to be like, like uh, kind of a version of spoon feeding, like, because it's, it, it's going to be brand new. Like when I read that, I've not really considered, maybe I learned this in grad school. I don't know. <laughs> like, okay, doubtful. So yeah, like that's going to be all new information for me. And I appreciate that. I don't think anyone learned it in graduate school because uh, Tom Hickson and Jenny Hoyt know it. And I mean, maybe the people they taught knew it, but <laughs> I learned a ton. I mean, this is what I studied as a, as in my PhD and I was still learning from their papers. I think they're amazing papers and they're, there's virtually no equipment required to do any of those, any of their, their evaluations. And that is also like, 
our own personal version of a gold standard. It's like, can we do this with a paperclip and goodwill? (laughs) Because, well, yeah, historically it's harder for us to get materials. And that's like a whole topic for another day. Um, But especially when we're learning. And really all it takes to do what they were doing is your eyes. And to see someone breathe, you need your eyes and the printout of the reading passage and you're good to go. I think it's helpful to have it recorded, but if you don't, it's not the end of the world. I think um, something that I'm kind of getting into now is it would be also really helpful. And this is where CEUs come into play is examples of this with real life people. Um, So learning from the masters, the people who, you know, created these things on how to get this information from patients, because in a sense, it does go beyond just asking bullet points of, you know, patient, do this, patient, now do that, you know, and, um, and then interpreting those findings. So recognizing in subtle shifts, you know, what means this versus that. And like, like before, I knew I maybe should have been looking at clavicular breathing, but turns out I'm really not going to see that except for a very small population. And it's going to be very obvious before our conversation. I did not know that. I just saw it on a line on an assessment. I think it may have been like a ASHA template for voice evaluations or motor speech evaluations or something. And I was like, that looks like something I need to be doing. I'm not really sure how. Probably did some Google searches. Didn't really learn a whole lot. So yeah, we need to do better. Yeah. See that and communicate that with people who are in the know. Just tells a lot of things. So well, on respiration, we could definitely, in the in the question period, if you guys want to do this, we could do some cases that I've seen, real life things that I've seen and done assessments on and done treatment with people who have respiratory disorders. Because I've seen lots of, now I'll be honest, mostly adults, some but mostly adults with, with speech problems, speech respiration problems. Yeah, that would be perfect. I would love for our um, extended version for the CEU to be on case studies where we go over those in in depth and problem solve and all of that. I love, I'm just such a big nerd. I just love case studies. I feel like there's so much learning to be had in them. Mm -hmm. I agree. All right. Um, Now, earlier in our talk, you did mention um, some CEUs that you've presented on. And so it'd be awesome to be able to link those in our show notes as well. I don't know if they're recorded. I usually do them like for um, state associations who have like a a state conference or something like that. So, but I do have, I could put together some um, slides that if that would help, maybe I'll send you a bunch of them and then it might be too many and you'll kind of decide what makes sense for the podcast that you want to do. All right. That sounds good. And I'm happy to answer questions. If people have a respiratory question, I do get emails from people across the country just asking me questions about their cases. So as long as you don't send me anything that's HIPAA protected, um, I could try to help you answer questions. So I'm Jay Huber at Purdue.edu. I know there's not a lot of us who are experts in respiration right now. Um, So yeah, increasing the number of those is priority for me. Yes. Excellent. Yes. Training up the next level. That's so important. Um, All right. Are there any other treatment modalities or ways that we can treat in patients? Yep. So having, I think that um, any, so anything that um, we've looked at some physical activity parameters in the field. I mean, I haven't, but others have. And um, while we think that being physically active really helps your um, overall capacity for respiration, we haven't found evidence that it really helps with speech breathing yet, but I think we need to keep looking at those kinds of things. Certainly, we know that people who are more mobile and more active are less likely to have lung infections and pneumonia and aspiration pneumonia. So it makes sense something's happening there with the respiratory system. Um, So um, we certainly should be encouraging when possible for patients to be active or walk or something that's safe for them to do, but would also kind of get them breathing. Um, 
I, it kind of depends on what's happening with your person, um, with your patient, what I would recommend for um, how to treat them. Um, but I've used, um, I've thought about, uh, I also think about when I look at the respiratory system, how's the valving upstream? So I think about, do we have enough support from the respiratory system? But then also, does do we need to work on laryngeal valving to make the whole system more efficient? Do we need to work on velopharyngeal valving, which can also affect respiratory breathing? If we're losing pressure anywhere in the system, that's going to change how effective the respiratory system can be. So when you're losing pressure, the respiratory system's working extra hard. And we sometimes see these patients who have had a problem with valving laryngeally or velopharyngeally who overdrive the respiratory system, where we have to work on kind of backing it off, not pushing so hard, um, being um, a little less um, forceful in respiration. And so I usually try to um, watch the person breathe, get a sense for where how they're breathing, um, and try to adapt those behaviors a little bit, just slowly adapt, taking that breath ahead of time, thinking about how much is going to come. Like, are they going to say a lot or a little and kind of pre-planning, which is something that we do normally as speakers. It can be very hard if a person has a cognitive decline to really think about those things, but teaching them what it feels like when they're running out of breath. We all know what that feels, you know, the tightness in the chest, the gravelly voice, the squeezed voice, tune them into something that that they notice. Do they feel it in their chest? Do they feel it in their neck? Do they hear it? So that they know when they're running out of breath and can change their behavior. Stop, take a breath. Um, there are uh, ventilator changes that you made if you have a patient on a ventilator. Um, and Betty Hoyt has published on a couple of different setting changes that you can make. Um, remembering that people on ventilators are talking on the inspiratory side of the breath. So the pressure for speech is there when the, uh, the ventilator is driving, driving airflow into their lungs. That's when there's a positive pressure in the system. So when we're working with people with ventilators, we have to remember the reverse, that kind of like switch. We usually think of speech on expiration. So there are some settings that you can change on ventilators. If you work, I would definitely work with a respiratory therapist. Um, and I can make sure you have that article. And then um, also learning a little bit about passing mirror valves. They're always at the ASHA convention. And there are uh, practicing speech pathologists who represent um, passing mirror. And they would come and do in-services. I've had them to my class before doing in-services. And the passing mirror is a one-way valve. So uh, it goes over a trach tube, or it can be used with a ventilator. And basically, when um, the air, when a person is breathing in, air can flow into the, in through the valve. But when they go to exhale, the valve shuts, and it redirects air pressure up through the vocal folds and out through the mouth, allowing someone who's on a trach to speak without, you know, it kind of gets away from that covering the trach tube for speech. And it really works nicely for people on ventilators as well. So, um, and they're great, their training is great and they have lots of resources. Yeah, their website's great. They have a ton of free CEUs as well. Yeah, um, do they? Great. Yeah, so um, I've definitely worked with passing mirror valves quite a bit with people who needed them. So that's another treatment technique that's available to us as speech pathologists. And then one more point about respiration, if, just one more thing. Um, if you have a patient who's having a swallowing, who has swallowing problems, remember that respiration is really important for cough and um, working on respiration in those patients then is a question is not only going to help their speech, but it'll make them more safe. It's not going to probably make them swallow better, but it'll make them more safe when the swallow um, it goes awry, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that cough is a protective mechanism, and if it's not strong enough to expel the material from their airway, then it's not doing its job. And if we can strengthen that, then we can make much better strides and 
keeping their airway clear of foreign material. Yay! <laughs> There's actually a lot of data to suggest that expiratory muscle strength training with EMST 150 improves um, cough. So mm-hmm. it's is much more eff- efficient um, after using that device. So yeah. Well, all right. I think this was an excellent talk. Thank you so much, Jessica. Um, do you have any final thoughts or um, parting words? My final thoughts or parting words, I would say, don't be afraid of the respiratory system. I know it seems really complex and it was that weird system that we learned about in undergrad where there was something about like recoil pressure and I don't really remember what that was and I don't know how to get at this. Dive in. You can do this system is if you really get into doing it, it can be one of the easiest systems to to actually get objective measures from because you can you can make several measures that are very easy, right? And you can really understand what's going on. It's also a really easy system to get at. It's intuitive what you might do to help this person if they're having problems. So I think we just get a little afraid of it, but it's a super friendly system and it's really important. So I would like to inspire your listeners to assess the respiratory system. That's fantastic. I love it. The respiratory system, it's friendly. (laughs) Very friendly. (laughs) All right, Jessica. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you get to feeling better. Me too. I need it. Thank you so much, Jessica, for blowing my mind yet again with your awesomeness. And please, y'all, check out the show notes. Jessica provided so much research with normative data that you can easily, I mean, at least I hope easily, apply what you've learned here today. Those links can be found at speechuncensored.com. Next week's guest is Julie Catio and Katie Seaver. They're representing Google's Project Euphonia. It was such an incredible experience to interview them and talk about the amazing research project they're involved with to improve access of speech recognition devices for people with speech impairments, such as dysarthria. It is an incredible interview. You guys don't want to miss it. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast and leaving your written reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'm so grateful for your support. And I wanted to remind you that you can earn CEUs for listening to the podcast through SpeechTherapyPD.com when you use the code SUP2020. That will get you a year subscription for $59. I want to shout out to Cranston, Rhode Island, Biloxi, Mississippi, and New Delhi, India. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the podcast. I want y'all to get out there and flourish and nourish everybody.